Well, I was hoping to make a joke about the balloon, but Joshua beat me to it. Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Now, I'd like to start out with a question, and that question is this. What would you do with your time if you knew with 100% certainty that you had only 24 hours left to live? Would you spend time with family and friends? Would you visit an important or exotic location that you never really got around to seeing? Or would you attempt to reconcile a broken relationship? Now, those may all be good answers. However, in Luke 13, Jesus suggests that something else should be the top priority before we die. Repent. We talked about repentance briefly last week in Luke 12, verses 35 through 48. But today we'll go into a bit more detail. But now let's turn that question upside down. What would you do with your time if you knew with 100% certainty that you had another 50 years of life ahead of you? Well, in some ways, I think Jesus's answer would remain the same. Repent. As Martin Luther famously wrote, repentance marks the entirety of our lives as followers of Christ. But there's also something else that Jesus draws our attention to this morning. Something in addition to repentance that goes hand in hand with repentance. And that's bearing fruit. Now, what does it mean to bear fruit? How is bearing fruit linked to repentance? Why are these things necessary? How do they go together? And when should we do them? Open up to Luke 13, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this place that we have to gather new faces and old faces and worship you. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you, that it would be good for us, that those in the room who believe would be challenged and encouraged to bear fruit, that those in the room who do not believe might be challenged to repent and bear fruit. Lord, I pray that either way, those of us here this morning who worship you would bear fruit for your glory, not just individually, but that this church together collectively would bear fruit for your glory and that this morning would just be one example of that good fruit. Thank you that we can gather here safely. I pray that you watch over us throughout the entirety of this service. Be with us here in this room. Be with our teachers and our students in the classrooms across the hall. I pray that you would keep us safe. But again, that most of all, we would glorify you with what we say and do here today. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can repent of our sin, knowing that you are ready and willing to forgive sinners. That's good news. Remind us of that today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, hopefully at some point this past week, you got the chance to watch the cinematic masterpiece known as Groundhog Day. In Groundhog Day, Bill Murray plays Phil Connors, an arrogant, cynical, and selfish weatherman sent to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania to report on whether the famous groundhog sees his shadow. But somehow, some way, Phil ends up in a kind of time warp. Every morning he wakes up, it's Groundhog Day again. Everything happens the exact same way it did the day before. And he has no idea how to break the cycle. He remembers everything, but no one else around him does. Now, at first, he's confused. But then he learns to use this to his advantage. He realizes that if every day is just a repeat of the day before, then that means there's no long-term consequences to his actions. But eventually, Phil is driven to despair. Even after multiple attempts to end his own life, he still wakes up day after day after day on Groundhog Day. Try as he might, he simply can't end the cycle. He simply cannot die. We don't have that same sort of certainty. While some of our days might be pretty similar to the day before, every one is still unique. And most importantly, tomorrow, or a second chance at today, is not guaranteed to us. It wasn't guaranteed to Jesus' audience in Luke 13 either. Verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus' audience wants his take on one of the most scandalous current events of their day. The time when the Roman ruler Pilate brutally slaughtered Jewish worshipers in the city of Jerusalem. Now, deep down, these people were likely asking the same question that we often ask in the face of grave suffering or seemingly unexplainable and unnecessary tragedy. They were asking, why? Why did it happen? But truthfully, they may have already held some assumptions. In the ancient world, many people assumed that such suffering or tragedy would befall those who deserved it. Those Galileans must have done something really terrible to earn such a horrific end. In a sense, Jesus' audience here is making the same theological error as Job's friends in the Old Testament. 
when Job, who appears to be a righteous man on the outside, loses everything, his friends assume that he must have committed some hidden sin to so anger God. But they later discover that they were wrong. So Jesus warns his audience, rather than speculating about what these people may or may not have done to deserve their sudden death, they should view this shocking event as motivation to repent. Jesus even adds, you know, didn't y'all hear about those people in Siloam? The ones crushed by the tower that fell? In the blink of an eye, they were gone, and they were no worse than those poor people that Pilate killed. So when you see these things happen, you make sure that you're right with God. Because the same thing could happen to you. The point is that life is fragile. There's no guarantee that we'll make it through today or wake up tomorrow. So what should we do in the face of such uncertainty? Jesus tells us to repent. But what exactly do we mean when we say the word repent? In their most basic sense, the biblical words for repent, both Old Testament and New Testament, get at the idea of turning around. To repent is to change your mind about something. But repentance is also more than just changing your mind, your thoughts, or your opinions. Repentance is a radical and complete reorientation of our hearts, our bodies, and our wills. On top of that, repentance isn't just forsaking one bad thing. It's turning to another good thing. To repent from sin means that we turn to God. Okay, but how does repentance really happen? Well, if it actually is this radical and complete reorientation of mind, heart, body, and will, then that's something that we do not perform on our own. And if we try to do it on our own, we probably won't be very good at it. Just look at the history of the nation of Israel. They repented often because they sinned often. But when they did repent, it was predominantly short-lived and inauthentic. Sometimes it was a repentance of outward actions, but not inward desire. Other times it was a repentance of words, but not of deeds. Now, why are human beings not very good at repenting of sin on our own? Why was Israel so bad at it? It's because sin is just that powerful. And if we are to have any hope of performing true repentance, we will need God's help. All right, then, practically speaking, what does repentance look like? One scholar argues there are four main components to biblical repentance. First, we recognize our sin. 
Second, we seek God's cleansing with grief. Third, we display a new desire to love and obey God. And fourth, changed action. We see all of these elements in Psalm 51, which is one of the greatest biblical passages on repentance that you can find. After his sin with Bathsheba, King David recognizes his wrong in verses 1 through 6. He seeks cleansing with grief in verses 2, 7, and 10. He shows a new desire to love and obey God in verses 11 and 12. And he commits to changed action in verse 13. Repentance is more than just feeling bad. More than just admitting fault. More than just giving restitution. And certainly more than just regretting that we got caught. True repentance includes some of those things. But it's also more than those things. Sounds good. But what does repentance lead to? Well, I'm happy to report that as difficult and unpleasant and as humbling as repentance is, it leads to good things in the end. In 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8, John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. And forgiveness is a good thing. If Psalm 51 is David's record of his repentance in the moment, then Psalm 32 is his reflection on repentance after it's happened. And David talks about how before he repented of his sin, he had this weight. He had this burden. He had this baggage that was just sucking the life out of him. But when he repented, that baggage, that weight, that burden was lifted. Repentance of sin can bring us relief because we're no longer carrying that sin around with us. And relief is good. In the end, repentance of sin leads to reconciliation with the God we've sinned against. Repentance is for our good. We often speak of repentance as though it's some harsh, cruel, legalistic hoop that we make people jump through so that they'll feel bad about themselves. But really, repentance is built on the bedrock understanding that our God is gracious, kind, and merciful. We repent of sin because we can expect God to forgive us. And we have that healthy expectation because of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. But one more thing. When should we repent? Well, to paraphrase Jesus in Luke 13, repent now. 
Theologian Robert Lethem writes, There is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Nor is there salvation apart from repentance. There is no forgiveness without repentance. We talked last week about judgment, and we'll talk about it again here in a moment. If we really believe in a God who will righteously judge sin, and if we really believe that sin against God deserves eternal punishment, and if we really believe that life is fragile, then we have all the reason in the world to repent of our sin and to repent now. But Jesus continues in Luke 13, verse 6, and here's where we get our parable. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now I don't know about you, but the owner of this vineyard sounds like an extremely patient man. The tree in question was likely six years old because farmers would give trees three years to grow before they expected any kind of fruit. But after two years of failure to do so, this farmer, this owner, gives the tree one more chance, one more year. But the owner of the vineyard, in addition to being patient, is also just. After so long, he ultimately must do what is right for the vineyard, which means it's time to rip up the tree, free up the ground, and plant something different that will actually do what it's meant to do. Bear fruit. If you look closer, there's nothing about the owner of this vineyard that sounds harsh, cruel, or impatient. He comes across as exceedingly reasonable. In fact, he's far more patient than others in his shoes would be. Think about a tree in your yard. If it's not bearing fruit, would you give it three years? Probably not. We had a tree in our yard that died, and we hardly gave it three months. This man is very patient and very reasonable. But then, as if the owner hadn't already proven himself to be exceedingly gracious to this consistently unfruitful tree, he shows even more grace. His hired gardener, the vine dresser, convinces him to give the tree just one more year, one more chance. He'll loosen up the dirt. Put down some fresh fertilizer, and with some special attention, with a bit of tender loving care, perhaps this fruitless tree can bear fruit after all. The Bible would identify us 
left to ourselves as that barren, dry, and apparently dead tree. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to steward God's world, obey God's commands, and live in fellowship with God and one another for their good and for God's glory. But they sinned. They exploited God's world. They refused God's commands. They abandoned God for the fool's gold of their own glory. They were supposed to bear fruit, but instead they stole fruit. And history tells us, the Old and New Testaments tell us, that we have followed in Adam and Eve's footsteps. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, old, and young, we have all fallen short. We all prove to be fruitless on our own. And yet, God has been patient. He could have ripped everything up. He could have left us to our own devices as soon as Adam and Eve fell. But he didn't. Even as we continue year after year, season after season, and generation after generation to be predominantly dry and barren sticks, we're still here. So if you look closer, this is a parable about God's grace. He graciously waits and waits and waits on sinners rather than giving up on us. And even better than waiting, he's provided outside help, his son Jesus Christ, in order that these dead sticks might become fruitful trees. But here's the thing. God is perfectly gracious and perfectly just. He will not be mocked forever. There will come a day when that tree, after years of maturing, years of nurturing, years of being given every opportunity to succeed, if it still refuses to bear fruit, it will be torn out. If the tree does not turn around, if it doesn't change its mind, you might say if the tree doesn't repent, It will be cut down. And like we saw last week, we're not entirely sure when the owner of the vineyard might show up. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when we will die. Those worshipers who got killed by Pilate didn't know. Those people crushed by that tower didn't know. So there is no time like the present To repent of our sin and bear fruit for God. Turning back a few pages in the Gospel of Luke, look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. These are the words of John the Baptist, the preacher, prophet sent from God to set the stage for the Messiah. John says, Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That sounds familiar. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, Jesus makes it very clear that we must abide in him if we hope to bear fruit. And if we do not bear fruit, those dry, dead branches are pruned off and thrown into the fire and burned. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance or be chopped down. It's the message of John the Baptist. It's the message of Jesus. But we can only do this with God's help. We must abide in Christ by faith. And the sooner the better. Because tyrants like Pilate lose their tempers. Towers collapse. Hearts fail. Cars cross center lines. And unless we repent, we will likewise perish. So then how do these two things, repentance and bearing fruit, go together so well? Well, they're two sides of the same coin. One leads to the other. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul uses this imagery of putting something off and putting something on, which is a great way to think about repentance. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, and then lists sins. And then in verse 12, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, fruits of the Spirit, fruits of holiness. Repent and bear fruit. Paul goes into more detail in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. This is the famous fruit of the spirit passage that maybe some of you know. Paul says there. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the things that Paul calls us to repent of, to repent from. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We turn to Christ. And those are the fruit that we then see. We repent of sin 
turn away from it and turn toward God. And when we leave sin behind and fix our minds on Christ, we bear fruit by the power of the Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you don't believe, I think your main takeaway is this. Repent. Place your faith in Jesus. The only one who can save you from the eternal consequences of sin by his humanity and his divinity, his life and his death, his body and his blood. You know, part of the reason repentance is viewed so negatively these days is because we live in a highly therapeutic culture. We expect to be constantly affirmed, accepted, coddled as who we are and in everything we do without question. We are just perfect the way we are, regardless of what anybody else says. But the Bible is clear that we are not okay. We need to change. And if we don't, we will be judged. Now, I don't say this to beat you down. The Bible does not say this to beat you down. In fact, if repentance really is the doorway to forgiveness of sin... The doorway to relief from sin's oppression, the doorway to reconciliation with God, then it would be cruel of me not to tell you to repent. God does not call us to repent because he delights in our pain and our discomfort and watching us squirm. He calls us to repent in his grace, kindness and mercy because he has something better for us than sin. And if you're here this morning and you are already a believer, your primary takeaway might be to bear fruit. You know, it's great if you've already believed. And in a real sense, you've already repented of sin. But may we examine ourselves to see if we are, in fact, bearing fruit. The kind of fruit that Paul talks about in Colossians 3 and Galatians 5. Because if we're not bearing fruit, something's wrong. And we should ask why. Now, we will inevitably go through seasons that are more fruitful than others. And our growth in holiness is not always a straight line on an upward trajectory. And by the way, we should examine our own fruits as much as we examine others. But God has given us what we need to grow what we need to bear fruit. This is the first time you'll ever hear me say this. God has given you the manure that you need to bear fruit. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. He's given you his people, the church. So may we repent of our sin and bear fruit for all of our lives. At the end of Groundhog Day, Phil Connors experiences a kind of conversion. He finally learns to stop living for himself and learns to serve other people. You might say that he performs a kind of repentance. And the fruit of his life is what proves it. He wakes up one morning and it's finally no longer Groundhog Day. May we repent of our own sin and bear fruit. And may we not withhold the call 
the gift of repentance from others who need it. Because life is fragile. And because someday, a new day, unlike any day before it, the day when we, when we stand before God in judgment will eventually come. So now may we repent in order that we might not perish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. And thank you for the gift of your word. Not just the parts of your word that encourage us and leave us feeling comforted and rejoicing, but even the portions of your word that challenge us, that have a little bit of a bite to them. Because even the portions of your word that have a little bite to them have challenge to them. You give them to us for our good. You give them to us because you love us. You give them to us from your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your righteousness. So, Lord, I pray that we would recognize your call to repent of sin, not as some incredibly oppressive, not some incredibly unpleasant thing, but rather as something good for us something necessary for us so that we might be reconciled to you. You are not an overbearing, egotistical God who likes to watch us squirm for your own enjoyment. You call us to repent of sin because you know what is best for us. You know what is good for us and you desire what is good for us. So Lord, I pray that we would leave those things behind where they ought to be and that we would pursue you Fix our eyes on you. Turn from the things that will destroy us and turn to you, which really helps us to flourish in this life and the next. And Lord, thank you that by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, through the body and blood of your son, we can repent. We can confess our sins to you and know that you forgive us, know that you hear us. Thank you that you have been so patient and so gracious with humanity that after generation after generation of failure and fruitlessness, we're still here. You still give us your gospel. You still are in the in the work of bringing sinners to yourself, of transforming us from these dry, barren sticks into fruitful trees. I pray that we would recognize our sin, leave it behind, bear fruit for your glory. All of which happens in and around and through and for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Help us repent and bear fruit for your glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.